Episode 6. How to solve a problem like Titian's Tarquin and Lucretia. Rehanging paintings in the age of Me Too. Hello. I'm in the entrance hall of the Fitzwilliam Museum. I've got three opinionated experts with me to talk about rehanging collections in the age of Me Too. In fact, would you introduce yourself and tell us who you are? I'm Luke Sison. I'm the director and Mali curator here at the Fitz. And how long have you been here? I've been here for about eight to nine months. I'm Jill Burke and I'm now Professor of uh, Renaissance Visual and Material Cultures at the University of Edinburgh. And Jill was on the uh, Behind the Scenes at the Museum podcast on the Renaissance Nude. Mm -hmm. So she's got quite a direct relationship to this subject matter. And Michael. I'm Michael Savage. I'm the Grumpy Art Historian and I'm an opinionated (laughs) museum visitor. You've recently reopened, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about the Fitzwilliam and its reopening? So the Fitzwilliam is just over 200 years old. We're entering our third century. And to celebrate that, we've been doing some major work on the galleries themselves. The restoration of this extraordinary space that we're standing in now, I venture to say the most beautiful museum entrance in Britain, and one of them in the world, I think. I'll just give a little bit of context to why I wanted to come here, apart from its beauty. Luke Sison. So I saw a lecture you did at the Warburg Institute about a year ago, I think probably just before you kind of got the keys to unlock this museum. It was a broad lecture about some of the things you were trying to do, but one of them, one of the points you made was that given Me Too was ongoing and given paintings are actually predominantly or frequently about difficult subjects and also very many nude women, um, you wanted to think about that in your rehang. And one painting in particular that you mentioned was Titian's Tarquin and Lucretia, which the Cambridge classicist Mary Beard has called to be discussed. So we will go and talk about that, but this is obviously a subject that doesn't just affect this museum. At the National Gallery at the moment in London, running until I think January 2020, there's a Paul Gauguin exhibition, and they've tried to not have many of his news of the young Polynesian girls. Uh, Jonathan Jones said it was a nervous cop-out. Mm-hmm. Last year, there was the uh, situation at Manchester where there was a pre-Raphaelite painting that was taken off, again for discussion, but it caused a huge uproar. A painting which depicts a scene from Greek mythology sounds pretty harmless, but Manchester Art Gallery has taken down Hylas and the Nymphs as well as removing postcards of the picture from its shop. We're joined now by Claire Ganaway, curator of contemporary art at the Manchester Art Gallery, and also by Rupert Mars. He's owner of the Mars Gallery, which deals in pre-Raphaelite paintings. One of the things that we started doing was getting together some of us from the staff team at the gallery to talk about how we felt about some of the galleries, particularly in terms of gender representation. And what is it about the gender representation in this picture that perhaps made you uncomfortable or at least raised the question of its removal? I mean, I think it is uncomfortable and I think it's okay to acknowledge that. But as I say, it's not just about this one painting. And we've picked this painting, I mean, quite provocatively because it is quite a popular one. But really, it could have been... um, any of the grouping of paintings within that gallery space. That particular part of the gallery, it hasn't changed for a long time. And the title of that particular space is The Pursuit of Beauty. Uh, There's a very Victorian feel to the gallery. Let me bring Rupert Mars in. What do you make of that? I think that this is about denying the Manchester public the 
possibility of seeing one of their favourite pictures. I mean, what would you think if you went to the cinema and were asked to sit there with no film in front of you? I think it's really, really quite arrogant to, to do this. If you really want to debate about this picture, let's debate this. Hylas was Hercules' lover, male lover. And here he is being lured by the sirens into the water to his doom. And think of uh, Big Brother now or uh, any of these reality TV programmes where sex is right at front of the agenda. We should be talking about that. And this picture is a very good catalyst for that kind of debate. Let's talk about that, not remove the picture in a censorship sort of a way. I mean, it's the new fascism. Don't like it at all. So this is a general conversation about some of these. And before we go up, I think it might just be worth reflecting on ourselves, whether we think that's a timely thing. Luke, you obviously do, because you mentioned it. I think it's absolutely crucial. Um, Now, that's not to say that I think that these pictures should disappear from view. On the contrary, what they do is help us understand a history of ideas and sometimes a history of prejudice that we need to we need to appreciate if we're going to understand where we are today. It's not necessarily right to impose anachronistic views on these works, but if we don't recognise that they speak powerfully to people now, then we're missing the point of these works. But we're we're not understanding why they remain important. And we have to understand, too, I think, that these were pictures which were, and other works of art, which were often complex and, and difficult in their own day, that they may seem to very simplistically enshrine and outdated and often offensive um, views of, of women or of gay and lesbian men and women or whatever it might be. But actually, often, subtly, there's a, a more interesting debate, a more interesting set of ideas that are enshrined, embodied in these works of art. Jill, what do you think? Um, I think that there's a big difference between the way that contemporary art and so-called old master paintings is often shown and we expect contemporary art to be um, challenging and we expect old master paintings not to be, to be comforting and this is a very broad brush and I think that if you actually look at some of these paintings they're deliberately challenging mm-hmm. they're deliberately difficult they were difficult at the time and I think what's been actually misrepresented is the idea that you can just go and see these paintings and go away thinking oh that was a lovely floaty experience I just had in front of a very beautiful painting because some of these images and we'll look at the Titian later are really disturbing and were intended to be be disturbing and at the time they were made had restricted audiences. I don't think it's the right thing to do to remove art from the public view at all. Um, I think that what people need to do actually is spend more time looking at things, more time thinking about things and that it's a gallery's job to be really to acknowledge the richness of these objects and to say spend more time looking at Titian or, or whoever, not less. Um, and, but to also to understand that this whole Me Too movement, which seems quite a new thing, comes out of decades of research uh, into sexuality, uh, into um, things like race, into a lot of different things that actually this that has been going on for 20 or 30 years. Um, and so all the curatorship is, is, is really based on research and not based on a kind of faddish faddishness and I think that's the thing that also needs to be acknowledged. Does that reassure you Michael? No I think all of that research over the last 30 years is profoundly controversial not necessarily in the academy as much as in society 
And I think when our polities are riven by culture war disputes, we need to think very carefully about what the role of the museum is in interpreting these kinds of questions. And the risk of um, a kind of uh, bubble of cultural experts, curators, art historians um, have one view informed by one set of research, but that could be profoundly alienating, politically alienating, to a large proportion of the society that we're in. So I just think that understanding, that, that kind of contextualisation needs to be done very cautiously. Luke, you're shaking your head. I always object to the word bubble because it's, uh, it's one of those words that... that, that characterizes a certain kind of activity in a particular way. I think that the kinds of issues we're talking about are ones that touch everybody. That's the point. Um, it's absolutely about breaking through bubbles, if that's the right word, through barriers rather than talking to each other. It's about perhaps taking some important research that was done and has been done in the academy and thinking about how does that actually play out? How do, what does that mean in a public context? What does it mean for as wide and a diverse an audience as we can hope to reach? But issues around violence, against sexual violence uh, against women are ones that are universal, that lots and lots of people have to deal with in, in particular ways. And lest we think that the kind of question of of, of rape as a form of entertainment, which in an odd one way is what the Titian picture is, has gone away, we should remember that over 50 characters in the Game of Thrones, 50 female characters have been sexually attacked during the course of the series. So that says something, I think, about how that is still an, a deeply current issue, not just for people chattering, because that's always the other word that is used, but for all of us and for all of our visitors. I can see why you'd say that. And going around a gallery last year, I was more alert to those pictures in a way that I hadn't been before. I do wonder whether that's A, a temporary thing, and B, if there isn't a danger nonetheless of the gallery dictating that to the audience and telling them how to think about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that in some ways all galleries always are in danger of over-interpretation. However, what's happened is that, say, when I came up through art history in the, in the late 80s, 90s, there wasn't any discussion of this kind of thing. And a lack of discussion is also an interpretation. Um, just because we're acknowledging this now doesn't mean that, uh, that, that it's, we're bringing in an interpretation that wasn't there before. What you got previously is things like, isn't, look at how... What, what a genius Titian is. Isn't he fantastic? It was telling you how to react. Um, lots of exquisite brushwork, this kind of thing. Um, and that's equally an interpretation. It's just not expressed in that way. So it's adding to it, Michael. It's contextualising it and there are additional interpretations that are being included. It certainly is, but it's, it's taking things that are familiar and it's bringing in the things that are familiar, those, those political debates that are in the public sphere already. You know, for me, it's the exquisite brushwork that's the thing that you don't get outside that you actually want to understand in the museum. It is those kind of, you know, art history, you know, more sort of narrowly focused kind of art history, you know, the beauty of the work, the things that you wouldn't otherwise know. How does Titian fit into the history of Phoenician art? How important is Titian in the Western canon? You know, those are the kinds of questions that won't get answered outside these walls so easily, whereas questions 
questions about things like Me Too do. You know, they are addressed outside. And, you know, even though Luke says he doesn't like the term bubble, I think it's, it's a, a widely used and useful term that just captures the really quite fundamental split we have in society right now around, you know, things like the culture war, things like Brexit, Trump, you know, those kind of big political debates where you have people on the other side of these debates who, you know, equally don't think that they're in a bubble. They think that there are a few kind of academics and, and, you know, these intellectual curators in museums who are entirely out of touch with the real world. You know, the Daily Mail doesn't think that it's a bubble, but it has a radically different view of the world from the one that I think the kind of museum profession is is promoting at the moment. Luke? Um, You're absolutely right that if museums don't talk about the physical making of works of art, the, the inspiration, indeed, that certain artists have, then, then you know, we're, we're clearly missing a key ingredient of our job. But it isn't, this isn't either or. This is about the capacity to analyse people's creative energy in response to what were real issues um, f- uh, it, that are contained in those, in those works of art. Um, they're not ones that we're making up. Um, you know, Artemisia Gentileschi was a raped female artist, and and to pretend that that's not the case, to talk to her, talk about her simply as a uh, the daughter of her 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 painter father, for example, which wasn't unusual in the old days, is to. Um, eliminate again part of the story so it's just, it really is genuinely amplifying it's not making a choice the other thing I think I'd say which I think is really important is that I completely agree with you about the instructive mode of museums I think it's, I think it's something that we should be getting away from what we would hope to do I think is to equip people with information and with ideas that allow them to have conversations themselves and for them to bring their own information and ideas to us that help us learn and help us see differently and see more. And that's the, those are the two things that are, are key here, it seems to me. Seeing acutely, differently and more. And, and, if we, and we should be bringing any questions we like to that mix, whether it's about the energy and the wrist as somebody wields a brushstroke or the attitudes to women and the foundation myth of the, of the Republic of, of Rome. And those, those, things are, you know, those things are not mutually contradictory on the whole. On the, on the contrary, they're, they're, they're reinforcing and they're important. I would regard myself as a radical traditionalist in that mm. sense. I want to make sure that we're not losing anything in terms of our ability to visually analyze uh, works of art. That's uh, absolutely key because it sits behind the broader questions that we're talking about now. And I don't think they are just modish. I really don't. I think sometimes maybe they're being pushed in certain ways at certain times. But as those, those pushes happen, they ensure that we're asking slightly different questions and slightly more questions of, of the works of art. And that means that when the next question comes along, that approach is then embedded in the, in the way we, we, tackle, we tackle something. So feminist art history in the 1980s, a long time ago, as Jill was pointing out, was the kind of um, area where we started thinking about who is it that's actually looking at these pictures in the period that were, was, me- was, was made? Who, is it always men? Mostly it was. But, but you know, we have to now start thinking about those questions in a different way. And had we not been challenged with those questions back then they wouldn't be completely mainstream, which I think they are now, um, as, as they are today. I think they are mainstream, but I then wonder if we've lost talking about the painting and talking about the achievements of the artist. I mean, Artemisia Gentileschi is an interesting uh, 
person here to talk about because obviously she was very much outside, not entirely outside of the canon, but she wasn't, didn't have a central place like Caravaggio, and yet she's this dramatic, fabulous. She was very, very famous in her lifetime, actually, Artemisia Gentileschi. I mean, one of the things is, is that, that happened is that we lost Artemisia Gentileschi yes. as a famous person, then we're regaining her, because actually her and other female artists, like Sophonis Brangosoli, who's an amazing artist, really, really interesting. Lavinia Fontana, again, really interesting. There's all these 16, uh, late 16th, early 17th century female artists. Many more are being discovered all the time. There's an astonishing amount of uh, female artists in Bologna who were famous during their lifetimes and then stopped being famous for interesting reasons that we could speculate about uh, when the kind of canon of art formed in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so... The I, mean, I, I agree with you. My point was more that she's being brought back in because she's a woman and because almost I feel sometimes like everybody has to mention she was raped. Now obviously mm. that was hugely important to her but that isn't why she should be in the gallery. She's and so being, I think sometimes, you know, she's being reincorporated for the wrong reasons. No, she's being brought back in because she was left out. And that's the, that's the point. This is so... I, I had an argument with somebody the other day who, who'd been to the Fitz and said, oh, you're doing these LGBT plus tours. Where's the tour for me? I'm a straight man who... Um, <laughs> and I said, the whole museum is for you. That's what, that's what it's been about. And it's not to say that um, there haven't... You know, that, the, that, that, opinion, that those values don't matter. On the contrary. But we have to understand the ways in which, as Jill says, they've dominated the um, conversation. They've dominated decision-making over, over, the, over the last centuries. I do think that there is an omission and an injustice which is being righted in this way. I just want to ask you um, one more question before we go look at the Titian and look at the painting in a bit more detail. When you talk about your man coming in and saying, what about me? I'm a white man. <laughs> Where's my tool? I mean, that does suggest that there might be something provocative about this. But my second point would be, is there a danger of thinking of audiences in these little compartments? So you're a straight white man. These are the paintings for you. You're gay. These are the paintings for you. Can you see that that might be a problem? I think it would be a terrible problem if that's what we did, but I don't think that's what we're doing. I think what we're doing is saying that um, a dominant narrative really essentially appealing or, or the result of only one kind of analysis uh, is, is, not, is no longer good enough, that we, we need to do more than that. But it's in no way excluding one person from, uh, an, you know, from their capacity to enjoy or, or interpret a, a work of art to point out something in it that they might not have necessarily noticed before, um, or maybe a, 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 an approach to it that they hadn't considered. And that seems to me that, um, again, once again, what we're doing here is not excluding anybody. On the contrary, it's about, it's about building and expanding. And that's, that, to me, is the important thing. I can say, as a, as a gay man, that going round museums where and exhibitions where that's simply not being acknowledged. For example, the, the sergeant and his friends show at the National Portrait Gallery and at the Met, where sergeant's likely homosexuality was never mentioned, and yet this was a show about friendship and about his, his friendship group. That, to me, isn't just extraordinarily bad art history. It's offensive. OK, let's go look at this Titian and we can <laughs> continue the conversation. Um, should we go upstairs? Yeah. We're really lucky because the um, gallery is shut today. So we're the only people here, bar 
people who are cleaning it up or working behind the scenes. So it means we get a fantastic view. You're listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins, and I'm talking in Cambridge to Luke Sison, who's director of the Fitzwilliam Museum, art historian Jill Burke, and Michael Savage of the Grumpy Art Historian blog. We're talking about the painting Tarquin and Lucretia, which is by the 16th century Venetian artist Titian. And we're talking more generally about how to display works like this one in the age of me too. Titian's Tarquin and Lucretia is about the rape of Lucretia. You'll probably want to look at this powerful and amazing painting. You can see it on our Instagram and Twitter account at Behind the Museum, and you'll also find other related visual material there. We're standing in front of Tarquin's Rape of Lucretia by Titian, painted sort of at 1560 or so. It's a very powerful painting. Luke. Tell us a little bit about it. What is this painting? So what we're looking at here is a picture that was painted by Titian in his 80s for uh, Philip II of Spain. And when he wrote um, a letter describing the picture, he, he talked about how he was wrestling with the most difficult concept that he'd tackled in an incredibly long time. It's quite a surprising statement because unless you know something about the sequence of the paintings of the Rape of Lucretia, one doesn't necessarily understand that this was really the first major easel painting that tackled this, this subject. So although there was a visual tradition of, this, um, of, of treating this subject, it was, in, it was in print form. So what you're seeing here is um, a painting of um, the violent assault of Lucretia, um, a virtuous matron, um, who, in the absence of her husband, is being um, uh, raped um, by, um, by, by Tarquin, um, who is in the position of tyrant within, um, within Rome. So, regarded at that moment as the overstepping of his tyranny, using his tyranny to do something that was, that was clearly evil and wrong, uh, it's witnessed rather extraordinarily by a little page or, or young man um, pulling a curtain back in, in the background. Um, and Titian signs his name on Lucretia's discarded slipper um, at the, in the bottom corner. Um, the, of course, the subsequent part of the story, which everyone would have known when they saw the picture, was that uh, Lucretia, shamed by... Uh, the sexual assault of this man uh, killed herself. And so she becomes part of the Renaissance repertoire of virtuous women who put their, their chastity and virtue above their lives. Um, but the other thing that everyone would have known was that this kicked off uh, the Roman Republic, that a, a process of some form of, of democratic participation and the overthrowing of tyranny um, was, was uh, the result of this appalling event. What do you think about it, Jill? What do you think about the painting? Um, I just want to add some things <laughs> to, <laughs> really? to Luke's historical account. Uh, in, in that Lucretia was really rarely um, portrayed, uh, as you say, but portrayed at all before um, Raphael did his print of the subject. There's a Filippino Lippi cycle of uh, Virginia and Lucretia in the 1490s. But uh, in Italy, it's really largely associated with the Italian wars, actually. Italy was invaded by France in 1494. Um, this uh, Lucretia was uh, 
Lucretia's rape and subsequent suicide was uh, related to this idea of virtue in the face of attack. So for a lot of Italians at this time, although we think of it as a very personal, very intimate thing, as an image of a rape, for a lot of Italians it was to do with the state being attacked as much as an individual. And that's something that we need to think that this painting already can be read on, or was certainly read on several levels. As far as I know, there isn't very much known about how Philip II kept these paintings. Later on, they were kept behind curtains. And so the curtains, and you get curtains also in the Poesia, which, which Titian did earlier for Philip II. So the idea of revealing and covering bodies is very, very prominent in, all this, in many of these series of paintings. Um, and there's a huge amount of drapery on this painting. It's really a kind of... Uh, Many, you know, Titian uses many techniques to make this drapery very, very tactile. And this is one of the extraordinary things, you know, these, you know, from the clothes that he's wearing to the sheets that uh, she's lying on and that uh, cover her to the curtain that's being pulled back. This is a painting that you really want to touch, actually. I, I mean, that's in, in terms of the kind of feeling it evokes, at least in me. Don't but touch it, Joe. I am going to touch it now. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pull me back. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is how actually upsetting this painting is, and that's where Titian is really different. I, th- I think, anyway, I mean, this is maybe overinterpretation, you can t- tell me off about this. But she has tears, she has a tear on her face, she's uh, pushing him back, there's like all these flailing limbs, this kind of moment of drama, really. And you also see this in Titian's other paintings. The Rape of Europa is also a painting where Europa is clearly being taken against her will on the back of this bull um, uh, Diane and Callisto which is in Edinburgh now um, Callisto uh, who was being held down and stripped forcibly by Diana's nymphs uh, she's, her face is in, in shadow she looks ashamed and Titian has this ability to, to really convey emotion on the part of the woman in the painting which is not always, but you know, other Renaissance artists aren't always very interested in this. Um, but he is there he a really painting is. of Lucretia that you would compare it to? That you can compare. If it you think to? of, say, Raphael's uh, print, which really started, the, the print after Raphael's design, which really started off the vogue for Lucretia, it's a very mannered. Um, she's standing up. She, she has a dagger at her breast, but it's a very. She doesn't look. You, you know, it's, it's a sad subject. But Titian really gets the drama. I'm going to ask Michael what he thinks about the painting. One thing that strikes me about its provenance is, is the fact that it was going to the King of Spain, who was a great collector of Titians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was a great kind of connoisseur. And whilst I, I completely endorse everything that's been said about the importance of the iconography, where these ideas came from, mm-hmm. I think the other side of it is, is just that it is a, 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 an incredible artistic masterpiece. And I think the first thing that, that um, Philip would have thought about it is... He's done good, hasn't he? <laughs> you know, he, he, he had a huge collection of, of, of great late Titians, and, and this is this is really one of the most fantastic of them all. You you get an almost kind of physical feel of it. Not, I don't feel so much the desire to touch the picture as the desire to move my arms. Yeah. You know, you actually see these this great kind of concert of limbs moving around. You get that sense in a, in a flat, still picture. You just get such a powerful sense of movement. You get the, the drapery. It's all moving. It's alive. You've got, um, you know, these, these great soft pillows that are... are um, indented with the weight of her body you've got the um the the curtains behind that are being being moved that are kind of draped down i mean it looks absolutely fantastic and i mean these would have been immensely costly luxurious fabrics at the time um you know the 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 rapist there with his his 
fabulously expensive grand kind of costume there and just that powerful sense of movement you know her her arms his his arm and dagger kind of coming forward much much straighter and, and, and stiffer and the kind of phallic sword that, that kind of comes up you know it almost anticipates some um, some of the later artists like I mean Poussin is, is kind of a bizarre comparison to Titian because they're, they're such different artists but actually the choreography of limbs the way that the limbs kind of point you outside the picture frame, the way that they integrate the, the figures, I mean, that, that's kind of what comes to mind much more than, say, Raphael, who solved a lot of the great kind of compositional problems of the Renaissance. He, he was kind of the culmination of that great, those generations of experimentation. And, you know, Raphael's uh, images are repeated over and over and over again for several hundred years. And, you know, I think what, what Titian is doing is, is really, you know, bringing it to life. It's just such a fabulously powerful picture. And, you know, to, to, to go back to Luke's comment about, you know, talking about greatness in art, I, I don't have any problem at all in saying this is really one of the great works of art. And I think those, those judgments of artistic quality are important because you could have other forms of kind of material culture like, you know, prints by, you know, sometimes quite secondary artists that are perhaps speaking more directly to the underlying ideas of the time, to the history of the time. But what's important about this is that it's a really stupendously great work of art, irrespective of, of that, that context almost. Luke, what do you think? So we have to ask ourselves why it's a great work of art, and of course I agree that it is. Um, and I think that what we're talking about here is the way in which Titian used his imagination and his technique in a sense, in the service of this subject, why, why Philip II would have appreciated it in that way. And he made some extraordinary decisions, a lot of which you've just talked about. One of them was to take the print tradition of the Rape of Lucretia that um, Giulio Romano and artists north of the Alps had taken, uh, where Tarquin has always shown nude, and to put clothes back on, on Tarquin. So this amazingly glamorous costume that mm -hmm. he's wearing is also something that reminds you of an inequality mm -hmm. um, here. This is not any longer a simple erotic subject, that, among many others, that were treated for private delectation in the privacy, probably, of your bedroom, maybe holding the print in one hand. Um, <laughs> but the... Um, <laughs> but this is... <laughs> I'm sorry, one has to be clear about yeah, what some of these things were. And, I mean, you know, erotica, we can talk about erotica and pornography and, and then forget what its direct impact was. Anyway, what I wanted to talk about here was, was how he uses clothes and the way in which they're painted, um, and draperies as well. We've talked about that already. The incredible um, uh, red lake of his, mm -hmm. of his britches set against the violent... Um, vermilion of his stockings, and then the bare knee, which yeah. explodes at the uh, the point of, of Lu Lu Lucretia's um, genitalia in a little burst of mm -hmm. white drapery. And I'm sorry, it's not, I think, far-fetched to imagine what this mm -hmm. is a pictorial metaphor for. Um, the, um, the way in which um, the paint, therefore, becomes the animating mm -hmm. ingredient of this, I agree, absolutely... Uh, amazing painting, but appallingly amazing painting, rather than fantastically amazing, is how I would put it. I mean, one that that churns you up in in a in a range of ways, and must have churned up the highly moral, um, but also, s in a sense, kind of 
masochistic um, king of Spain? Jill? When we were talking, I was thinking, one of the things it reminds me of, actually, is the Imodi, um, the, um, the prints that were... Um, First designed by uh, Giulio Romano and then um, printed by Marcantonio Raimondi and then uh, and then all destroyed, but we have kind of records of them. Um, so we made this series of um, pornographic, for a better word, pornographic prints that were done in the 1520s. Um, and there's a similar, and they're actually very uh, very highly artistic prints in some ways. You know, they're really well thought through. They're really carefully uh, they're modelled on Roman um, on, on the Roman coins and Roman brothel coins often, and lots of other uh, classical references in them. But they have this similar interest in how bodies come together and move around each other um, and in some ways so you get this kind of erotic you know these erotic connotations but it's totally typical of this series of paintings for Philip II that you're drawn in and then repelled at the same time and so you're drawn in and you think oh you know this is so beautiful her flesh is so wonderfully painted the way that the light kind of shines very softly on her belly and her white arms and this is clearly a sensual I think you know depiction of of, a female naked body but it's terrible what's happening at the same time and we're meant to feel that we're meant to feel the terribleness as well so he's implicating the viewer in 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 the rape in some ways and that's what apparently what makes it a powerful painting because it's so disturbing Michael absolutely and I think that a lot of that, notwithstanding some of the historical context that isn't immediately obvious to us today, a lot of that is just so immediately apparent. You, know, you look at this picture, you don't need actually to know any of the context. It, it's just so clear what's going on. One thing I wonder about is, is how at the time people would have received pictures of, say, um, the martyrdom of saints or even the crucifixion and whether they would have felt that as being similarly powerful in a way that perhaps we don't today, you know, because those kind of, that tradition, those stories, are just that little bit more alien to us. And images of saints being you know, literally flayed alive, they, they often look, you know, almost parodic. You know, they're, they're just unbe- unbelievable when you compare them to more modern, of shock horror, you know, the film, filmic tradition. And, and therefore, maybe this is just easier for us today. Uh, no, I agree with that point. I do wonder, though, I mean, the very use of the body um, in, in Western art, in Christian art, has been, in a way, I think, to relate to the viewer, because we've all got one, and we can all relate what it must have been like to be on a cross with you know, nails through our hands. Another thing that, that strikes me about this is, is the sense of female agency, because although she's the victim, you know, she's the one being raped, I mean, the story is actually of her agency causing the foundation of the Roman Republic, you know, and you really get such a powerful sense of her in this picture fighting back. I mean, her arms look more powerful than his. He's got these, these kind of weak, weakly muscled upper arms, you know, compared to what, you know, people like Michelangelo were producing or, you know, some of the other great Italian artists. I mean, it's almost deliberately wimpish. And she, on the other hand, looks enormous and powerful. Michael's point that it's impossible to separate the paintwork from the subject matter and it's in a way impossible to have an unemotional reaction to this painting. It's brutal. Leads me to ask the question, do we need to discuss it today? Is it not obvious? What can a gallery do? When this picture was lent to an exhibition about Titian at the National Gallery in the early 2000s, I remember discussing it with a number of scholars then, and the discussion was about Titian's late style, his 
painting technique at the end of his career, which we haven't said, I think, clearly enough, was absolutely radical, was revolutionary at that moment in its looseness, in its speed, in its... Um, the sketchiness and energy which she was bringing to the application of paint to canvas. And um, there was a long discussion about Titian on the question of non finito, whether he really finished or whether he didn't. And because this painting is signed in such an interesting way, the discussion at that point was um, entirely about finish and the degree of finish that was expected and that a, a, a great patron like Philip II um, might have might have. Um, been disturbed by or might have been completely comfortable with. I don't remember in that moment discussing the things we just talked about, of how subject matter and technique intersect to make this picture powerful. Now that's 15 years ago or a bit more, um, and I think it says something about, um, about why it's necessary not to tip the analysis of this picture from one place to another, but simply to, as I said before, absorb more of what it's actually about. To make the experience richer, because, to, because what we're doing at that point is understanding how Titian chose subjects, which he did. So when I say at the service of, he was also actually um, choosing those, those images, that subject matter, that he needed to wrestle with, that he needed to, 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 to fight with in order to, to get these extraordinary results that we saw. This was no walk in the park. You know, he was, he was off-piste. He was really pushing himself in his 80s to do something uh, amazing at that point. And if we think of it as a sort of, you know, um, without thinking about... Um, how the relationship between actually I'll, I'll just say it again three figures in this work not just the, 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 the rapist and his victim but also the, the voyeur or the witness or, and which is it um, you know, which, are we, which are we looking at here as, as, as Jill says the removal of draperies of curtains of clothes is, is such a key thing here and he's, 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 he's coming into this scene and looking doing nothing um, he's he's watching just as as we are and he's beautifully sketchily incorporated in such a way that our presence and his are somehow connected as both being essential to the picture but also peripheral and in some ways to these two to these two men unless we think about the role of each of these figures how they would have been viewed in terms of the gender politics of the day, in terms of the broader politics of, of the day, then we're not understanding what, what Titian was, was fighting to achieve, what his, what his concetto um, actually was. Why was this so difficult, given that what he's doing is basing uh, his image on a set of prints that already existed. His composition is not new here. He, that's not the point. It's, it's how, he, how he executed it and what changes he made, what, what, what subtle alterations, including, as I said, this absolutely extraordinary decision to sign it on, on Lucretia's kind of discarded uh, slipper. Can I say something about, because we asked about Philip II and we don't know very much about the original um, kind of placement of these images. However, what we do know about uh, other images of the mythological images with nudes on that were made at the time is that they were talked about, that they were in rooms uh, that were there for gatherings, for social occasions, and I don't think these paintings are saying you must talk about it in that way or this way. I think 
the whole point of these objects is that they're multivalent, that they're rich, that we can talk about them in many, many different ways. And absolutely, if you can bring in different audiences, because I remember when I was first doing art history and I thought, I just really don't understand what these people are talking about or why this is interesting. I shouldn't really say this. But, um, <laughs> but it, it was true because I didn't understand um, you know, why one painting was better than another. People, we'd look at Giotto and they say, and Giotto is so realistic. And I was like, I can't really see that. Why, why is he so realistic? But it was, you weren't really encouraged to question that. And then suddenly I started really looking myself and I thought, well... If you compare Giotto with, say, Michelangelo, he's one thing. If you compare him with someone else, he's something else. And he's, within his own terms, you can ask different questions. And that's hope, I would think, is what we maybe can agree on, is that we want people to engage with these objects directly in a way that makes them think and, 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 and think interesting things about them. And for many people, in my experience, uh, many people who are st- students... This age, the, the question of women's domination, the question of subjectivity, the question of sexual violence is very much on their minds. And, it, and this is a painting that helps people talk. And this is what they're for, they're for conversation. Even talking about whether and which of the two figures is, is the more powerful, because, I mean, I have to say I don't agree with you about in your characterisation of, of Tarquin, but the fact that it's open... The fact that Titian has left us with enough ambiguity to discuss that is actually key here. He, these are not; these things don't happen by chance. These are these are calculated decisions. These are these are deliberate ambiguities uh, that allow the kinds of conversation, the kinds of of discussion around exactly what we're doing now um, to, to to happen. Michael, um, do you recognise what Luke said about being involved in an exhibition a number of years ago and these questions not coming up and how that is a kind of rarefied, strange world that doesn't reflect on reality? But, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, mean, that, that I was, was struck by that discussion from Finito because it was a discussion among specialists who've already accepted the kind of obvious points of the picture. So you go beyond that. It's not a case of kind of coming back to the immediate image that's in front of you. It's what are the other things that you can bring in. And it's something that I'm increasingly obsessed with when I go to art galleries, is is that they try so hard to engage an audience that knows nothing at all to try and draw them in, which is, you know, obviously important. But what's the next step? And it just feels like there's this incredible bifurcation now where you've got a much larger professional body of people in museums, in universities, who are professionally concerned with the arts and who know, frankly, more and more. You know, we do more and more research, publish more and more books, more and more exhibitions. And then on the other hand, we've got people who know literally nothing at all. You know, how do we talk to them off the street? And the question is, how do you go from one to the other without doing an art history degree? How do you learn a little bit more? How do you understand what's, what's, what's better, what's worse? Well, you know, you can go off and do some internet research and make your own comparisons. But, you know, I, I do think we have some duty to, to try and tell people a little bit more and let people develop a bit further. And I think in the old days, for all of its uh, uh, downsides, I think there was more of a sense of a common community. Um, there was less of a... Uh, formalised professional path from an art history degree to a PhD to working in a museum. You know, a lot of people who worked in museums came from, you know, wildly different backgrounds. You had the, the, the sense of um, 
connoisseurship that was, was something wider than just that kind of professional body that people could aspire to. And I think it's, it's sad that we, we seem to be losing that a bit. I have to say that after Luke. nearly 30 years in the museum world, that's not a picture I recognise. Um, it's, in my view, the kind of conversations about connoisseurship, important though they were and important though they remain, were ones which took you to a point of a kind of nod of recognition rather than proper analysis. So we can go, yes, that's by Titian, that's by Leonardo, that's by Raphael. Good, sorted, tucked away. And, um, and then there was a certain agreement about what those artists were trying to achieve as if they were living in a kind of entirely autonomous uh, independent, barriered, dare I say it, bubble, and um, the um, and that's not the, the case. And I think that what's happened since then is uh, is, is a f- certain forms of expansion and certain forms of conversation. Not always led curatorially, often led by colleagues in education and learning departments, but I think in ways which we can um, hope that we all benefit from. So I mean, I'll give an example. I remember working on a Raphael painting at the National Gallery. Uh, we were trying to keep it at the National Gallery. That, the Madonna pre- of that the was Pinks? the Madonna of the Pinks. Um, try and keep it at the National Gallery. And that was the key thing, to build it into the, to the National Heritage in that way. And we worked a lot with um, young mothers, uh, teenage mothers in uh, mid-teens. Um, and Can I, I ask? I, I always wondered about that because it did seem very cynical to me. I wasn't sure if it was it a PR thing, a press thing. Uh, what we what were trying to line? demonstrate was that the picture communicated to a large audience beyond those people who were saying it's important because it's by Raphael. What we were trying to do was demonstrate, and maybe in a way that felt a little mechanical in retrospect, but um, feels a little mechanical in retrospect, that this picture speaks in in particular ways and I um, will say that as a result of that I learnt a lot about the painting that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise I'm not I don't have children Um, and so speaking about the relationship between the mother and child with uh, young mothers often with their children there who um, were literally experiencing those relationships for the first time as as the very young Mary had was fascinating and I remember the moment when one of these young mothers said "Um, Jesus must be six months old and I said how do you how do you know that and and she said well um, because Mary is just propping him up with the inside of her wrist which means that he's learned to sit up properly on his own but he's still a tiny bit wobbly so and and that's the kind of support that she's giving him now I as a as a professional art historian would never in a million years have noticed that because it's not a a, 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 the kind of life experience that I bring to these works of art but they did and I've never forgotten it and I've always since then looked at that relationship between uh, the Virgin Mary and, and the baby Jesus um, in a new way to think about what the actual, if you like, the sort of strange practicalities of Christ's upbringing would have been and how that would have spoken to audiences then and how it continues to speak to audiences now. 
I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I entirely can see that it touched you. But in a way, it's the reverse relationship of what I want when I go to a gallery. So I have my own experiences that I can read through, I can see in paintings. I have those already. What I don't necessarily have is ways of seeing through the curatorial expert and everything else. And so that's why I go to a gallery, not to kind of see my life, because I want to leave my life every now and again mm -hmm. and just have a couple of hours off of it. But sure, I mean, it's, I think we're setting these things up as if it's an either or. And I feel like I'm almost mollifying this. And it's really not. You can look at the Madonna of the Pinks in a completely different way. You can look at it as a, a work by Raphael that's very beautiful in its own way. And you can look at it in many different ways. And, you know, I think we've all experienced that time we just go into a gallery and we just have a big sigh of relief. And just maybe even look at one object and just stare at it and then just leave again and make the days better for it. And even... To be honest, not even articulate what we think about it, just look, not bothering with words. That's the whole point of the visual arts for me. That's why I'm an art historian. So sometimes I just can be quiet. Michael? I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I just mm. think that it would be good if we were better at um, bringing people up from the kind of immediate you know, person off the street. You know, the, the, there was more so in between, yeah. the kind of sandwich level in the middle of yeah. people who are more enthusiastic than someone who's just visiting a museum for the first time, mm -hmm. but is never going to do a PhD or an art history degree. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by one thing that you said, Luke, because we've been talking about how important it is to uh, have diverse ways of seeing and thinking about things. But when you were criticising connoisseurship, you, you said not not thinking about things, not the proper kind of analysis. You know, it, it, That's not proper analysis. And to me, it's, it's, it's a perfectly legitimate kind of analysis. It's not everything. For me, connoisseurship is about much more than attribution. It's also about understanding of levels of quality. And I think it's, it's part of the story. And it's the part that's hardest to get without you know, lots of experience and lots of research and lots of comparison and, and, and reading and talking. Um, and I think that's something that, that museums could be better at, um, at helping people with rather than the kind of more fashionable political topics and I'm not accusing you of this and I don't think that's a problem here specifically but I certainly think in the uh, kind of professional associations they're very strongly pushing you know political agendas that are quite alien to that tradition. Michael I think you're absolutely right about connoisseurship I think that it is a skill that needs to be taught more directly I think learn, uh, dealing with objects dealing with paintings dealing with drawings dealing with prints is something that we have to make sure is absolutely the heart of what we teach at university I think that there was a, a kind of wave of people saying oh, connoisseurs or oh, they're, they're terrible we don't need to know but you know, it's not very interesting Fair but I think that's I think that's rather over and now we're kind of more concerned with giving people back these skills and I think it's really important but I just don't think it's neither or. Luke. I would defend connoisseurship to the hilt. It's an incredibly important part of what we do and I also absolutely agree with you that it comes from experience. It's also even more important as people analyse images online on um, Instagram in two seconds flat and make judgments about this being by X or being by Y or often not being by either of them. So we need to know what we're talking about. We need to know whose creative minds we're analysing. We need to be able to develop those families of pictures around artistic personalities. None of that ceases to matter. On the contrary, it matters more as we then think about how, what was this artist's vision? What did they, what were they, how did they view the world? How did they teach us to, 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 to view the world? 
And I think that that's the point, is that we, we, we must... You know, this is a university museum. I truly believe in, in scholarship, in deep, profound research, but we have to ask ourselves some of the right questions. Some of the... Well, I think that the right questions is not like We have to ask ourselves more questions in order to make sure that we're then uh, ensuring our, our scholarship connects with people, that it feels as if we're talking about works of art in exactly the way you've described, so that, so that somebody who, who loves them um, but wants to know a little bit more can rely on our expertise to tease something out and to invite something in return. That's, that's the key for me. It's, it's about a dialogue. What we're doing is creating conversations around, around pictures just of the kind that we're having having um, now and that seems to me to be what 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 curators and the scholars who work with curators are are, are there are there to do is to think about say nudity in the 15th century and 16th century and say well it's not all about erotica sometimes it's about the nakedness of the soul sometimes it's about something else again and and getting people to think about that and then go out and into a, the next changing room that they look at and think about okay I'm now surrounded by naked bodies what am I what am I feeling what are the range of things that I'm feeling? Because they've had the chance in a museum to, to, to isolate and pinpoint different sorts of response to, to the image and to the world around us. And that seems to me to be uh, what we're talking about here. Thank you for listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Do let us know what you thought as well as ideas for future episodes on Twitter at Behind the Scenes. There'll also be links on there and pictures of the works we've discussed. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and presented by Tiffany Jenkins. It was recorded by Nikki Barringer and the producer was Jack Fillimore. <laughs>